Merry Christmas. Doesn't look a lot like Christmas outside yet, but it will, I'm sure. Hopefully not until I get my snowblower fixed. That's my goal. It can't snow until I get snowblower fixed, and it's snow enough where I need it. So this morning we're we're taking a break, a little bit of a break from Isaiah. Uh, We'll finish up Isaiah next year. Um, We're taking a little break this morning to start a Christmas series called Christmas Prophecy. We're going to look at the different prophecies in the Old Testament about the first coming, the first advent. And usually when we, when we think of prophecy, obviously our mind usually goes to Revelation. And we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time in there, but we, we can't forget the amount of amazing prophecy about the first advent of Christ that is in the Old Testament. The prophets had foretold it. Now understand, there's not just one place where it's at. It is spread throughout the Old Testament because if it's all in one place, then as Paul said, those who are in power, the evil forces would have known what was going to happen and they would have prevented the either, they tried to prevent the birth, which we'll talk about, but they'll also, they would have prevented this crucifixion of Christ. So the whole story of Christmas, the whole purpose of Christmas is in the Old Testament. It's just spread about. So we're going to look at some of those places. So centuries before the birth of Christ, and before the prophecies were going to be fulfilled, the prophets had foretold what was going to happen. And this is probably what I would call one of the strongest validities for the truth of God's word, that the fact that this is God's holy word, this is what he wanted to come, wanted to be told to us. It's all in there. It shows us because it's not just from one person as far as one person who wrote it. God used all the different people to write it. But it all comes back to the same story in the same prophecy god is the yahweh is the only one who knows what's going to happen this morning we were sitting at the breakfast table abigail and i and and i'm big on different videos that i'm watching i'm watching one by an organization called aoc and they had just put out a video on the antichrist and so this is talking about the spirit of the Antichrist that is in the world. And, and she's asking some questions. And one of the things that uh, the person says, and I believe this is true, is that Hitler was an Antichrist. He was a form of Antichrist. She says, I, best, Abigail says, I don't understand that. Why, how do we know that? It's like, well, think about this. Satan doesn't know what's going to happen. He always has to have somebody ready. And he is always trying to push God in order to get him to start the process because Satan is relishing those three and a half years that he's going to reign and everybody's going to worship him. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. Only God knows what's going to happen in the future. And it is only he who has the power to work everything out for his will. No matter what, yes, we have free will and we can do some things, but you must understand, even when we exercise our free will, we are actually working into the will of God. That is how amazing and powerful he is. Some people think there's a conflict there. There's no conflict. He doesn't force us to do anything, but it's just amazing how everything we do actually ends up working towards his will, one way or the other. Only God knows the beginning from the end. In the book of Ephesians, what Paul says, Paul says, in him we have obtained, Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance. We have an inheritance in Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There it is. God works everything out according to his will. 
during our series, series this year, we're going to look at focus on four prophecies found in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by the baby in the manger. We're going to begin by going all the way back to the book of Genesis and look at the very first prophecy given in Scripture, the prophecy of the great battle that's occurring even today. Let's go to Genesis 3, starting with verse 14. I'm going to ask that you stand for this. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Father, we praise you for your prophecy and your words. May they move our hearts, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You know, most of us are pretty detached from the war in Ukraine. Unless you have somebody that you know who's a family that's there or you came from there. I'm sure that uh, Pete, my father-in-law, is more in tune to some of that stuff because his, his mother was from Ukraine. But most of us are detached from it. You know, we, we don't really think about it all the time. We, we hear about it in the news, but we, we, don't, we don't experience that war. And, and, and I don't care what side you think is right. I think they're both wrong, by the way. But it seems distant from us. Now, I want you to imagine that the war came to Ossian. Imagine Russian or Ukrainian tanks coming down Highway 1. And their goal is to capture our city. Uh, we, we'd hear gunfire in the streets. We'd hear you know, shells going off. This one, this thing that we thought was distant, that we really didn't have to think about on a daily basis, all of a sudden is now part of our daily lives. You see, this is the spiritual battle that we're fighting right now. The fight, the battle's going on between Yahweh and Satan himself, or Lucifer, as I want to call him from now on. You must understand, I'll get this out of the way, Satan is not his name. Hasatan is what is actually, every place in scripture where it says Satan is Hasatan. Hasatan has a, has, a, has a predicator before it. The Satan. He's the accuser. His, what we really know we should call him is Lucifer. That's usually, truly what his name is. Or Beelzebub is what his name ultimately becomes. There's different places. And if you call him Satan, it's no big deal. But I just want you to understand that, that Satan is what he does. He, he's, he's the adversary. He accuses Lucifer is what he is too. He's lucid. He's bright. He is the he's a deceptive star. He's the shining one who is deceptive. I'm gonna try to call him Lucifer, at least in this this series. But this spiritual battle has been going on for unknown time, even before the Garden of Eden. And what we're now finding out is that that battle has now 
being played out. Like It's no different than the tanks coming down Highway 1. It's been distanced from us. You know, we don't think about it. But now it's part of our world. Now the spiritual battle that, that has been going on between Lucifer and Yahweh are now, is now amongst us. And now we are part of it. And this is the same world that Jesus himself was born into. Now, you, you wonder at times why you feel so tired. Why do you feel worn out all the time? It's not just because we're so busy, and yes, we are. There's other reasons why. Why is life such a struggle? Why do we struggle with the world? Why do we struggle with things in the world? There is a reason we're part of a battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And we're part of this battle, this war that was prophesied back in Genesis by God himself. Because what has happened is this battle has crossed over from the unseen realm and is now in our realm and is part of our world today. But see, the good news that we see, actually see back here in Genesis and the good news of Christmas is that Jesus has now come into the world. And he's going to put an end to this war. That this little baby that was born in the manger is a ray of light and sunshine into this dark and dreary world. The book of Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. I, none of us, I'm sure here, have a really. Some of us may have experienced being in a foxhole and the darkness of war, and all of a sudden the light comes and shines and brings us hope. That is what Isaiah is talking about. In fact, this verse is the verse that Jesus Himself quoted in Matthew 4:16. Jesus coming to the world is like the sun dawning on a dark, moonless night. And this fact was told years in advance in the first prophecy of Christmas. Now, there are three aspects of this battle that we're going to look at. We're going to look at the battle that's going on between Yahweh and Lucifer. Now, this is a battle that's been going on and it's continuing to go on. And then we're going to see how that battle has now been has drawn God's people into it. And ultimately, the battle between Lucifer and Jesus Christ himself. So let's first look at the battle between Lucifer and Yahweh. You know, every battle has a beginning. Something happens that causes people to begin fighting. Every squabble that our kids have, something caused it. They don't spontaneously just start fighting. Well, they might spontaneously just start fighting. But usually there's something, there's a disagreement. How did this battle that we find ourselves in, this war that we're in, how did it actually start? Where did it start? Well, the battle started in heaven. The battle started in the unseen realm between Yahweh and Lucifer, who's known as the great dragon. And we get a glimpse of the start of this battle in Revelation. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. 
It says, now, war arose in heaven. Michael, who's an angel, or a, a Elohim, Michael and his angels, which is actually Elohim that they use it here, Elohim fighting against the dragon. So Michael obviously is on the side of Yahweh, and we have the dragon who's on the other side. And they're fighting. And the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and Hasatan, the accuser. The deceiver of the world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now we also notice here that Lucifer is called the, uh, that ancient serpent. So we have to think about this. Where else do we see a serpent? Well, we see a serpent in the garden. So we, we have to kind of connect those things. So we, that's why we believe that that was, that was Lucifer that was in the garden. There's no place in Genesis that says that was Lucifer. And there are other places in Scripture that there are accusers that are not Lucifer. But since we have this ancient serpent, we kind of think that. And that's why we believe that he was the serpent in the garden. Now, what do we know about him? What do we know about our enemy? You know, in World War II, when uh, Patton was going to go into to battle against Rommel, uh, they kind of knew how Rommel was going to act because Rommel had written a book on his military tactics and so they read it, so they knew their enemy. Know your enemy. So what, who was our enemy? Well, one time, Lucifer was a beautiful Elohim. He was a spirit being in God's realm. He was beautiful. He was probably the most beautiful Elohim there was besides Yahweh himself. He was a member of God's council. He was a spirit being in the throne room of God. He was full of wisdom. He had perfect beauty. We read about him in Ezekiel 28. Now, we must understand that a lot of times God uses metaphors to tell the people that he's talking to certain things, but he's also telling it to us so we can understand that it's not just that person he's talking about. This is what it says in Ezekiel 28. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. The word of God came to him and says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. And, and so apparently we have this king in Tyre who is probably the epitome of kingness and beauty and so forth on the earth. But God is also using it as a metaphor for Lucifer. It's almost like he's talking to the king, but he knows Lucifer's over here listening and Lucifer knows who God's talking about. He really knows. This is what he says about him. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. I don't believe, believe that it says that all those jewels were on it, but that's how he shone. He was so bright. He was beautiful. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. So, so we know that he was a creation of God. He is not all eternal like God is. You were, in, you were an anointed guardian cherub. Lucifer was a guardian of the throne room of God. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. 
You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You, your, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end, and you shall be no more forever. We see prophecy past, prophecy at the time, and we see prophecy future about Satan's ultimate demise, Lucifer's ultimate demise. His heart had grown proud. He attempted to take Yahweh's throne. I will ascend to the throne of God. I will be the Most High. In his pride, he led a rebellion against the Almighty God. But he and his companions were not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. We see this in Isaiah 14. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who lay the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will send above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol into the far reaches of the pit. He thought he could ascend. He thought he could take God's place. And so God says, no, you won't. Herod, when he was being praised, did not bring praise to God. He ended up dying. We, we, we can't put ourselves or anybody else on the throne of our lives. It must be Yahweh and Yahweh alone. So the war has broken out in heaven. But obviously, he, Satan has been thrown, Lucifer has been thrown to earth. He's now here. It's interesting if we look in the, we're not going to go to it today, but when we look in the, in Revelation when it tells the story again about how he was thrown down in heaven, it says, oh, praise be to God. The accuser of God's people is gone. Whoa. <coughs> whoa, whoa, whoa to the earth because your accuser has now come to you. You wonder why things are so bad on this planet right now? Because he's here. He's here. So war was not contained just in heaven. So war has now come to earth. If we go back and we look at this war that is beginning, you can see one of the part of it here in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6. <coughs> Pardon me. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field, and the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Notice what he's doing. 
he's immediately being crafty. He's not doing a direct assault. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of, of, of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Which is not what God said. It says you can't eat it, but it said nothing about touching it. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <laughs> A half-truth. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave it some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, the battle's now shifted to earth. And Satan is trying to do an end run around Yahweh. He, he tried the direct approach. He tried to, to fight against God directly, and it didn't work. So now he's going to do the more of an end run. He's going to come around him and go after one of his prized possessions, his prized creation. He comes to the man or the woman in the form of a serpent, deceives Eve, and she in turn convinces Adam to disobey Yahweh. This single act, this one moment, leads the whole world down a path of destruction. Now, this is what we try to teach our kids. Every decision you make has a repercussion, good or bad. Everything you say today could have an effect tomorrow. That's why scripture is so adamant about us guarding our hearts be careful what the tongue says because the tongue is, speaks from the heart. Have only good thoughts. Think on these things only. Think of only what is pure, what is holy. Don't think about those other things. Just don't even think about it. Eve should have told the serpent, we're not, I don't even want to talk to you about this. But she didn't. Lucifer is a thief, he's a liar. He couldn't win the full frontal assault, so he's going to bring it to earth. And he's going to work on leading God's people away from their creator. If I can't hurt God straight on, I'm going to hurt him on the side. I'm going to do things to hurt him with, with uh, he can't do anything about. I'm going to lead his prized creation away from him and have them worship me instead of worshiping him. So the battle between Lucifer and God's people now begins. <coughs> As I was thinking about this, I'm, I'm looking at, um, the, looking, thinking of Lucifer's battle plans and what he's doing. I think he was, he found so much success, what he thought was success in the garden, that that's how he decides to operate from here on out. It becomes his regular operating procedure. His thought is, is if he can hurt Yahweh this way and lead people away, he could win. But Yahweh, obviously, like I said, works all things out for his plan. So what does he do? He cursed the man and the woman along with Lucifer. And God sets enmity, which is deep-seated hatred. That's what it is. The word actually in Hebrew means deep-seated hatred between the woman and the serpent. 
and between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. Look at verse 15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The battle lines are drawn between the offspring of God and the offspring of the serpent. Now, we know that the serpent, Satan, does not have any offspring. So, obviously, who are the his offspring? His offspring are those offspring of Eve who have chosen to not follow Yahweh. Those who refuse to repent and follow the Messiah. Those that choose to repent and follow God, follow Yahweh, and follow the Messiah are the children of God. But what's interesting in, the, in verse 15 is that he also mentions a he. So it, it switches from a plural noun to a singular noun, he. He's now beginning, God's talking about a specific offspring of Eve who is going to bruise the head, crush the head of Satan. Now Satan's going to bruise his heel. He's going to wound him, but not be victorious. Jesus is going to overthrow the kingdom of Lucifer. In the Near Eastern thought, ancient Near Eastern thought, the head, when you talked about the head, you'd use it as a metaphor for the kingdom. So God is basically saying, because remember, this was written to people of the ancient Near East, so you've got to think about it from their perspective. These words mean something. So it means that God says that, the, that you're going you're gonna, yeah, to bruise us here, you're going to wound him, but he's going to crush your kingdom. So we see the battle being fought throughout the Old Testament. <clears throat> Starting with Cain killing Abel. Ishmael struggles with his brothers in Genesis 16. Jacob and Esau, two brothers, are squabbling constantly. You go a little bit farther in the, in the book of Esther, you have Haman's hatred for the Jews. leading right up to the night in Bethlehem where Jesus enters the battlefield. And you can see the enmity continuing in our world today. And believe me, brothers and sisters, it's going to get worse. It's going to get much worse. So now Jesus has entered the battlefield. And now the, we're going to talk about they fight the battle between Lucifer and Jesus. Now, the battle between Lucifer and Yahweh was going on in heaven, and, the, and an attack on Yahweh's prized creation, which was man, brings it to earth. And now it's going to be focused on that one man, that, that he that God talks about in the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. See, Lucifer knows that Ultimately, what God says is going to happen will happen. So he knows that he's in trouble. So what's going to need to do? He's going to need to try to try to cause problems with the offspring. He, if he could just taint that bloodline a little bit, because he knows that the Messiah must be pure. So if, if he could just, you know, put a little bit of evil into that bloodline, you know, he might have a chance of swaying the Messiah to his way. If he could just destroy it or taint it before the Messiah comes, he might be able to keep it from happening. 
we see one of his schemes in, in Genesis 6, 1 through 2. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. You know, I've taught about this, what my feelings are on this, what I believe this is talking about, what many scholars do. This is a direct line of attack on, the, on Christ. If he could taint the, the, the bloodline with, with something that's supposed to be separated. Heaven and earth are not to come together that way yet. But there were some of God's sons of God, some of his counsel, who decided they wanted to go, they wanted to do this on their own. Jesus, they, they, God had failed in the garden, so now they're going to do it. So they come down, they have relations with women, and they have children. And now you have a mixture of the heavenly uh, believe me, read the unseen realm, talk to me about it. Believe me, it is it's what many theologians today feel. This is what was originally thought according to the Jewish tradition. But he's trying to interrupt the godly line of Eve that would ultimately result in the birth of Christ. We also see an attempt to taint the bloodline in Genesis 20, when King Abimelech takes Sarah, who was supposed to have a child through Abraham, so he takes her as his to be one of his wives because Abraham had lied and said it was his sister, which really wasn't a lie. It was a half-lie because it was his half-sister. Same father, different mother. And Abimelech ends up suffering because luckily he had not done anything, but this was probably another attempt of, of, of Lucifer to to get the bloodline tainted. But God steps in and warns Abimelech in a dream. In Exodus 1, Pharaoh orders that all the male children, all the Hebrew children who are male, were to be killed. I, I believe it was another possible attack of Lucifer himself, trying to influence the bloodline. But God orchestrates the life of Moses so much that he has his mother put him in a basket and send him down the Nile. And he ends up being found by Pharaoh's daughter. Then there's the Assyrian attacks that we've been seeing in Isaiah and the Babylonian exile while the royal sons of Judah are all killed or they are either killed or they were tried to, they were tried to convert them to the pagan re religions of Babylon. Trying to get them to deny their faith. And then, of course, we have the attack of, by Herod the Great on the Christ child himself. We again see Lucifer going on a full frontal attack. Christ has been born. It's probably anywhere from, he's anywhere from, you know, a very young child to two years old. We know that because of the age that Herod, what Herod does with the age. Herod intercepts the wise men from the east as they're coming to worship the new king. Convinces them that, you know, hey, I want to do it too, so why don't you tell me where he's at? And we can come and worship him too. But God intervenes. He sends the, the magi home on a different route. By the time Herod realizes what has done, happened, he sends his soldiers what it says in Matthew 2.16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. 
And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So we know that at that point in time, Jesus was no more than two years old. We also know he was in a house by that time, because that's what it says. The wise men went to saw him at a house. Again, the attempt to kill the Messiah so that Satan can rule. But, again, God makes all things work out for his ways. And what does he do? He sends, after the, think about this, the wise men bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh who were, that were exactly, you know, they were worth something. Those things were, were not cheap. And that he gives them to Joseph and Mary, and they end up having to flee to Egypt. What do you think they survived on? Those gifts from the Magi. God works everything out for his purpose. So they flee to Egypt as Joseph was warned in a dream. We have other attacks in, in Scripture. We have Lucifer's tempting of Christ in the wilderness. If I could just get him to worship me, then we'll be good. We have Judas's betrayal. We even have, you think about this, we even have the struggle of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is weeping, saying, Lord, take this cup from me. It's that moment of weakness in his humanity. Nothing wrong with that. It's not blasphemous. It's part of being human. The beauty of it is, is that he immediately says, but not my will, your will. He immediately shows he is devoted to Yahweh. See, the prophecy of Genesis 3, the crushing the head of Lucifer, will occur, and it occurs on the cross. So there you have the first Christmas prophecy. When Adam and Eve fell into sin... God gave them a prophecy that the one who deceived them, Lucifer, would be crushed by the seed of Eve, the Messiah. The beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy occurred in the little manger in Bethlehem. And his fulfillment occurred at the cross on the hill called Golgotha. Now, what does Christmas mean for us today? Well, we know that Lucifer is a very powerful enemy. But we also know that he's defeated. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. And he will come again. So for now, we're going to struggle in this battle. We're going, we're going to be part of these battles that are going on against this enemy, who in reality has no power over us. He, he's going to try, though. He doesn't give up. He's going to tempt us. He'll try to convince us that we are powerless when in reality we have the power of God behind us. And when Jesus returns, Lucifer's time is going to be up. He will never engage Yahweh or Yahweh's children in battle ever again. And just as you think about this, the faithful in the Old Testament waited patiently, for the most part, for the coming of the Messiah. You and I are waiting patiently for the coming again of the Messiah. 
we wait for his return. We're going to grow weary in this fight, a fight that's been going on since before Eden, and that we now find ourselves in the middle of. But in the midst of our struggles, we have this prophecy, this prophecy back in Genesis 3.15 of what's ultimately going to happen. And we have the, pars- the fulfillment of that prophecy in Christmas. And the completion of that prophecy at Easter. Why? Those things should bring us hope. Bring us endurance. Christmas is a reminder that Jesus has come. And he will come again. And when he comes again, the battle is going to be over. Because he's not going to come again as that baby in the manger. He's going to be coming on a horse with a sword. Ready for battle. A battle that we're not even going to have to fight. He will fight it. It'll be done. With a word, he'll end it. The war has been won. That is what the little baby in the manger has done for us. That is the first great prophecy of Christmas.